Hi, I'm John Mather, Nobel Prize Laureate and Senior Scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA, and you're listening to The Soul of Life. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with the former owner of the storied Dutchman Recording Studio in Seattle. Kurt Cobain had actually referred to the Dutchman as the grungiest place in Seattle. Gary Mueller's love for music and love for people shines through the gloomy weather so typical in the Northwest. Everybody has a different way of finding meaning in their life. Um, when I found music, it was it, kind of everything was answered. <laughs> Finding this groove in life wasn't a sure shot for Gary. My father, right out of high school, day out of high school, he's like, well, why don't you come to work with me? Because uh, we got to make some money. So I started doing drywall. Gary's story speaks to anyone who wants to follow their passion for the arts. He knows it ain't easy. I remember liking it to being on a fast-moving train and you want to be on this train instead of the one you're on, and having to find a way to straddle to the other train and make the leap. I asked Gary what it's like to be at the console when artists share their music with him. The reason that I decided to call myself a producer was that I realized I couldn't just keep my mouth shut. And it wasn't good for me to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't honoring the artist or the music if I was. How does he know when to push someone for more and when to back off? Sometimes with bands, it's everything's flowing. There's no conflict. And then other times, you have to fight for an idea. Gary talks about a trend he's seeing in his music community of people giving up drinking and where he draws the line on drugs in a profession that research says is at high risk for substance abuse. Nirvana, when they showed up, they because they were going to be there for a few weeks, I actually had them sign some... You know, uh, like a little, uh, I want you to be responsible. Uh, <laughs> and really, Kurt, you know, just kind of stood and looked at the floor a lot. And I asked Gary about his favorite recording artists and the music that he's listening to during the last year. Of course, we also get to talk about studio equipment and some of Gary's favorite gear. I mean, essentially, every mic has to go to the right voice. You're like uh, the guy at Ollivander's in Harry Potter that sort of finds the the right wand for the right, for the wizard or something. Like there's, a, there's a I've got a mic for you. <laughs> Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. This is episode three of season two, the grungiest music studio in Seattle. No, I never wanted to be a priest. <laughs> I'm 
I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. I, I'm really thrilled to speak with Gary Mueller today. He is a recording produ- music producer and a songwriter and a musician. And he has been uh, doing this for decades in the Seattle area. In 1988, he opened the Dutchman Recording Studio to the public. It's an artsy warehouse recording rehearsal facility where he uh, lived and made live records until 2009. A year later, he started the Banny Love Recording Studio in the Columbia City Theater, where he was able to expand his vision of recording in larger spaces through the historic and spacious area that that is. My pleasure to talk with you today, Gary. How are you? I'm doing great, Keith. Nice, nice to actually see your face and and talk about my favorite subject and just hang out. Um, you know, I'm interested, especially in, in music and your history with music and um, your your work with music. We're going to talk about work and art and all of that stuff. Um, you know, as I was preparing to speak with you, um, I did just a little research, and what I turned up was surprising to me. Like people, I think, refer to the Seattle in the Northwest area as it's think of it as the recent history in music, but there's, you know, it goes deeper than that. Ray Charles, Jimi Hendrix, art. Yeah. Um, and of course the, the punk and hardcore music of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. Funny story. I worked in a, I, I grew up in New England, Massachusetts and lived in a town called North Brookfield where there's this little known recording studio called Longview. And uh, the Rolling Stones recorded one of their big albums there. Jay Giles, Stevie Wonder—it's a long list of names, so it's very secluded. And so I'm I'm working as a checkout clerk in uh, in this supermarket, Victory Supermarket, as a, I was probably like 16 years old. And um, the the drummer from Alice in Chains—I can't think of his name right right now—comes through with like snacks. It's just the weirdest <laughs> experience. <laughs> My friend's like, "Yo." <laughs> um, it's interesting music everywhere and and you find it in all sorts of parts of the country but seattle really like you said is blessed um tell me about what you do and tell me kind of where you started this journey i've been around a few years but i still am that uh, 13 year old guitar player that was just obsessed with dropping the needle and learning the coolest licks and uh uh, you know, I I think that um, I'm one of those people that found a passion early, and uh, really, I mean, I think by the time I was 11, 11 or 12 was when I really kind of sealed on the deal that um, there was just nothing else for me. I, I loved other things, but music was just the obvious giant open door that I was going to move through, and uh i some something about having a focus at that young age really i don't know kind of buoys you up and uh i'm sure everybody has a different way of finding meaning in their life um when i found music it was it, 
kind of everything was answered. <laughs> and then you just start moving through. And uh, you know, if, if I look back on my life, it's all just a series of steps, but it's all rooted in that first foundation. Um, uh, there was a point in my life where I, I thought, oh, I've never questioned what I'm supposed to be in this life. And right at about 21, I'm like, maybe I should let go. So I, I spent a year actually exploring, should I be something else? And uh, I was so happy at the end of that year to go back. <laughs> and not that I'd completely let go of music, but, I, but emotionally and uh, intellectually I had let go to give myself that chance. Um, uh, basically, you know, I went from being a musician, uh, singer, singer, songwriter, to being a producer, engineer, um, when I realized that my own music wasn't making money and I, I needed to find a way to get out of a day job. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you're smart, you, <laughs> whatever you can do to get out of that grind, that seems to pull you back. And I think being artists, it's really easy to, uh, to kind of feel tortured by the day job and the, the daily grind, you know? Yeah. Say more, so, say more about that. Like how, how it sounds like you, you're familiar with that, with that. I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, so right out of high school, um, for better or worse, my father, you know, he was, he's a super loving, amazing father. And he, I think day out of high school, he's like, well, why don't you come to work with me? Uh, Cause you got to make some money and I know that music is your life. But, uh, so I started doing drywall and, uh, you know, it was really good money at 18 years old. I was making much more money than most people my age. Uh, and that's kind of also a negative because now you're sort of used to that level of income. And uh, I was doing my music full time at the same time, but uh, after a while, uh, uh, it just starts to kind of wear on you that, uh, you know, like by the third year, I remember uh, if I was working by myself, sometimes I would just stop and, uh, kind of sit down on the floor and just let the songs go through my mind. <laughs> what I, the songs I was working on and what I wanted to be doing and mm. why was I here on this job? And so I remember um, it was, it took years of, I mean, really moving into my first building, the Dutchman, was what got me out of that. Uh, uh, so it was a, an extremely cheap building that I could rent, do whatever I wanted to, uh, cost very little money. Uh, it, it, it was, it was the perfect way to kind of segue out of a day job and have a way to make some money, but be doing music. Uh, uh, and I, I remember liking it to being on a fast moving train and you want to be on this train <laughs> instead of the one you're on and having to find a way to straddle to the other train and make the leap. And really starting the Dutchman was that leap. Uh, you know, part of me wishes I had done that leap with my own music and just been more dedicated at uh, my own uh, performing and songwriting. Uh, but ultimately I don't regret it because the life of a engineer producer has been pretty rewarding. 
I mean, you get to touch the lives of a lot of people and, and I'm sure yeah. they, they, they touch your life, your yes. life as well. Um, you, you opened the Dutchman. Um, tell me the story of that place. I mean, it's a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Can you describe for people who've never seen it or never heard of it? I mean, some people have described it as a fixture or, or, or a, um, oh, yeah. you know, a, a Seattle music scene fixture. Uh, tell me yeah. about that story. Um, it's an interesting story. <laughs> it's, um, I first came on to that building. Uh, it, it's it's on the corner of First Avenue and Spokane Street, or it was on the fr- corner of First and Spokane Street, and it's a pretty major intersection in the south end of uh, downtown Seattle. Uh, it really borders what's really in the Soto district. So Soto is um, like Soho, but it was south of south of the Kingdom was the the expression Soto. So we were maybe a mile south of the old kingdom, which is also no longer there. Um, you and said it was, was there on the corner of first. And- well, it burnt, burnt down uh, in 2009. So uh, it had stood on that, built on that corner for, I, I think it was built around 1910, uh, maybe even a little earlier. Uh, so yeah, it had been there a long time. Uh, it. Went through a lot of different lives before I got it. Uh, it. It was a factory for a long time. And by the way, I only had about 25% of the total building. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that I was leasing from had a sheet metal company right next door, literally my neighbor inside the building. Uh, that was an, another interesting aspect <laughs> of all this. you I know. Imagine. But, but uh, in, uh, I guess it was in 19... 19- 81, 82, uh, a buddy of mine, I rented out a room from the guy that had the, the, the space at the time, that corner. And uh, somehow I got roped into helping them build a studio in there. And it was a very fly-by-night business. Uh, had a lot of problems. Um, the building had really fallen apart. I mean, uh, the walls were barely standing inside that building. The electrical had been torn out. A lot of it, a lot of the plumbing had been torn out. It was just, it was a real rat pit. And uh, I had these construction skills and all the moxie that you can have when you're that age. You know, I guess I was 24, I think, when we started it, something like that. And and uh, so we just rolled up our sleeves. Me, I had a partner, my buddy Shane, who is a musician friend of mine. Uh, we started the company together and uh, within a year or two I bought him out because he was very not interested in doing what we were doing <laughs> and we had a, a good parting of the ways and uh, I continued on uh, the building the construction skills I had allowed me to make it semi-respectable I mean mm-hmm. <laughs> it had nice solid walls and good electrical and good plumbing uh, the building really continued to have structural issues the whole time I was there, but uh, it was um, just before the building had been a restaurant for maybe 30 years between 1930-ish and 1960-65. So that character really kind of held through. I mean, when you walked in the place, you could sort of get a sense of the restaurant past. Uh and you live there, so there, I live I mean, there. So yeah. I'm hearing like um, this description of this sort of place with like barely, you know, walls. You know, I mean, but it's it's like kind of just patched together in places, and that's how it was. It was, and you you fix it up. 
I have once again having I was a journeyman drywaller by at that point. Yeah. And uh so I everything was rebuilt. You know, it could have been nicer, but it was pretty. It was pretty good. Uh, those structural problems I mentioned were things like uh, roof leakage that uh, we never got totally fixed. Uh, great landlords, but it was an old, old building, and so so it did have some grungy elements to it. <laughs> I can't deny that. I think there was a quote that somebody told me that uh, Kurt Cobain had actually referred to the Dutchman as the grungiest place in Seattle or something to that effect. Mm. And I've tried to find the quote and I'm not sure it actually is real, but it makes sense. It was rehearsal studios a little while before I got there. And then uh, uh, me and Shane took it over. We were there for, he was there a couple of years and then I continued it on. So I think, you know, within a year or two, it was full on rehearsal studios. We had 12 rooms, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Sub Pop was really just launching i mean it was 1984 so we had some of the sub pop groups in there some cz record groups but i yeah i was living there the whole time my idea was i wanted the musical castle i wanted to do whatever i wanted to do and it was the perfect place because i had uh, 6000 square feet of space that i paid 270 dollars a month for and uh, that allowed me to Put the money into the construction and kind of live cheap, right. and uh, be surrounded by musicians. What was it like to to run into Kurt Cobain or the guys in Nirvana at that time? Well, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I didn't appreciate who they were in the very beginning. Um, all of the other grunge groups that were there—it's really silly to call them grunge groups—but all my friends that were in bands that uh, were of that genre, they uh, looked up to them immensely. They were already, so I think it was about 91, I think when they came in. Um, and they they borrowed the room. It was, uh, if I recall right, it was room six and Mud Honey and Bundle of Hiss were using the room at the time. And uh, actually Screaming Trees and Nirvana both would borrow the room because they were all buddies. So they would show up and, and uh, well, Nirvana only did it once, but uh, Screaming Trees several times would show up and for several days be there. Um, Nirvana, when they showed up, they because they were going to be there for a few weeks, I actually had them sign some, you know, uh, a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like a little... A little uh, sublease? Th- yeah, yeah, like, I, I want you to be responsible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the funny part of that story is that... Uh, when they walked in the room, I totally thought that Chris was the leader of the band because he was just all friendly and uh, open and forward. And really, Kurt, you know, just kind of stood and looked at the floor a lot. I mean, I, I, I wished I had been smarter than that because if I just listened to their music, I mean, honestly, the two weeks they were there, I remember the room was next to the bathroom and I'd walk to the bathroom each day and the walls would be shaking. And they were one of the few bands because they, they, were, uh, they were actually making money. They didn't have to do day jobs. Um, this is long before the Geffen Records and the, the big success. And uh, they, uh, they'd be just making this music. And after about four days of me making my trip down there, I, I remember stopping and going, 
oh, wait, they're doing catchy music. <laughs> like it, it was, um, there was that element of um, where your mind started to see the patterns and uh, the, the attractiveness of their music naturally struck me without me mm. even trying. It just happened by me walking down. Coming through the a walls. A couple times a day, coming through the walls. Wow. And then after two weeks, uh, they were going on tour. And I remember them walking down the halls to leave. And uh, yeah, it was it was a memorable thing. And, and then, you know what, two years later to be driving down Aurora and hear uh, Teen Spirit like right. on all the stations all at the same time. Yeah. Was just, Wow. I mean, it really was like an explosion for not just Seattle, yeah. but for, for that style of music as well. Exactly. Uh, and and yeah. such an influencer. Um, but it, it sounds like your, your music was not that genre. I mean, you were coming out of a different True. Um, maybe musical culture and had, had different tastes. What were some of the, the influencers for you? Well, uh, it's, I guess I'd say it was because, the trajectory that made me not be what they were doing. So I, cause I was full on rock as a kid. It's just that, uh, you know, I, I guess right around uh, the time I was about uh, 19, 20 years old. Um, actually the, the guy that I started the business with Shane, um, he was playing in a rock band with me and he, started going into experimental music. So uh, uh, Brian Eno and uh, uh, David Byrne had just done uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And he had been reading about these guys and he wanted to go into the new territory of experimental music. And it was like a giant light going off for me. I, Him telling me that he was going to do that made me look at my own life and I realized that I was following in the steps of all these great guitarists and, and mind you, they were incredible. But I think if you really, if you appreciate originality and you appreciate sort of like the, the lonely path of individual individuality, you, you have to figure out where you stand on that. And at that moment I decided to go straight into experimental music. So Hmm. So when I started the Dutchman, I was already very deep in drum machines and uh, uh, computers already, uh, MIDI recording, guitar synthesis, uh, uh, taking guitar boxes and running your vocal mic through any kind of stomp box and uh, four-track recording, whatever you could do to get outside of the world of traditional uh, recording A new sound, and music, new sound. Exactly. So I I did like uh, I, some of the uh, synth pop stuff that was happening at that time. Um, so yeah, that that definitely divided me from uh, a lot of my rock groups in the building, right. Uh, be, right? Because as you as you know, I mean, Seattle was just exploding. Uh, you know, by by eighty eight, probably it was it completely taken off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it strikes me that like, yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm a baseball fan and, and, you know, some, the industry like music or like baseball has this, you know, there's this pinnacle, right. That where you, you, you see, you only get to see the professionals at this top, top level where it seems like what they're doing is perfection. Yeah. And, and that's where the money is obviously. Yeah. And, 
and yet the the farm, so to speak, that supplies all of that talent. There's so much talent; it's that's below the the public's radar, or at least most of the public's radar. Um, right. Right. Uh, one of the people you worked with, I, I happened to come across uh, her writing, Molly Lannon Kenny. Um, yeah. She's a yoga based healer and therapist, and she wrote about you and who you are and. And kind of, and I wonder how you would respond to this. That she said that you're always, you always know the little bands, not just because you've got your ear to the, the radio, uh, or the internet, music, and news, but because you've always been a champion of small bands. Um, that you believe in them. You've got the ability to make whoever is around you feel like they're unique. Um, where does that land for you to hear someone like Molly describe your presence in the studio? I mean, I mean, she's she's a very dear friend. I've I've worked with her and known her for quite a few years, and uh, I, yeah, I remember reading that when she wrote that, um, and uh, I was very honored. Um, she has amazing insight into life, and uh, her perspective is just awesome. And she's extremely kind and generous. Um, I I think it's it's true. I I would say. I, I'm not kind of thinking of it that way when I'm doing it. <laughs> so, it, so, um, it's not like you say no to bands who are like really, really big, and right? Really want want to go somewhere, <laughs> like, right? It's, I mean, you know, you could say that. Well, I mean, everybody has something, right? So, no matter where you are on the scale, and if you can find the thing in a person that can be encouraged, that's what it's about. And so, uh, I, I've taken lots of projects that I knew didn't quite match up with where I wanted to go, uh, professionally. Um, I do try to stick with the pros because, uh, I am trying to achieve heights. I am climbing, you know, you're sort of looking up over the horizon. Uh, but at the same time, um, there's the realities of life, which mean, uh, uh, you, you, you're not just going to say no to people, and um, the vast majority of them. I mean, I do have some filter. You know, I sure uh, if if I can't sit side by side with somebody for a few weeks, yeah, intimately, it's pretty intimate, right? And I wanted to talk yeah, oh, yeah. about that too. It's you know, what, what yeah. like what's your job description? Because I mean, um, we I mean, we read about some of the famous people and how they go through whether it's you know managers or. Um, you know, even even their own bandmates. Just the conflict that happens within bands, the emotion that's coming out when when somebody and the ego that comes out. Somebody's creative yeah. process is running into you know somebody saying no to them. You know, somebody saying no that doesn't that's not where I want to go with this. And so there's clashes yes. and stuff. So oh yeah, I mean, what yeah. is your job description? Obviously, you have the technical skills. You're a musician, so you can you can hear things. You you jump in and play with with bands that uh, need something laid down. It sounds like and. Mm-hmm. Um, you do kind of like, like it sounds like a journeyman's work in in the studio. What you're pointing at is uh, it reminds me of when I decided that I was a producer, because uh, that term is extremely loose. Um, uh, a lot of people have their idea of what that means, and uh, you know, today, especially with uh, the hip hop industry, being a producer is quite different from what I do. Um, but I appreciate that too. I mean, that's, that's also wonderful. Uh, I, uh, and I've, 
I admire all those producers that have extremely strong opinions and uh, whatever they touch sounds like them. Um, I, I, uh, the reason that I decided to call myself a producer was that I realized I couldn't just keep my mouth shut. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. And it wasn't good for me to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't honoring the artist or the music if I was. Um, when you have that active like um, insight mm-hmm. and you're experiencing music, um, if you learn how to open and take it in and to let the influences kind of mix and, and because you know, we're all hearing it differently, but there's also a commonality. And so it's, it's the blend of those two things. So right. everybody in a band has their own viewpoint of what they think it's going to sound like or should sound like. Um, the, the whole idea of the fifth member of a band is, is a very real thing because that kind of producing, you're basically one of the members and you're just being another influencer. Um, the difference is you're in a, you're in a more objective position because you've just shown up at the scene and they've just spent the last three months hashing out this material. Right. So you have the, the beauty of, uh, your perspective of not, uh, of being separate. Mm-hmm. But if you're, I think if you're a good listener, you train yourself to hear things, uh, easily and be open to it. Um, and then, you know, Sometimes with bands, it's everything's flowing. There's no conflict. And then other times you have to fight for an idea. Um, you know, you learn what battles are worth it and which ones aren't and which ones aren't important. And uh, mm-hmm. I think they, they both, the successes and the, it's really not failure, but there's, uh, there are the times where like, I wish they had followed my advice. <laughs> right. right. And then other times you're like, oh, I'm glad they didn't follow my advice. <laughs> Only one you said was three. Certainly, I guarantee. Passing right in front of me, my Sunday green. I'll be here until it's right. Could be here till Sunday night. Gotta be humbling, right? I mean, to, you know, think, and there's there's so much that's not predictable. There's so much you can't plan for, in terms of how people, like you said, respond to a sound or a message in your sound, or especially now in this day and age, the persona behind the message, uh, behind the music. Um, it seems like people are are buying not just the music; they're buying the the person, they're buying the brand, they're buying that identity and what they stand for. Maybe politics involved or or not politics, right? It could be more on the art, just pure art. I wonder about, what would you say about um, perfectionism? And, and, and how do you, mm. you know, you can answer this in many different ways in, within yourself, right? Obviously yeah. there's, I mean, the, the, the thing that I hear from people I know 
who are recording artists um, is like, you know, when they listen to their own stuff, they just, they, they realize they could have spent another week in the studio with that. Um, yeah. and, and then there's people, you know, like John Legend or, you know, they're just like, they do it once and it's done. Yeah. And it's like, okay. Um, yeah. So h- how do you deal with perfectionism in yourself or how do, when you see it with someone else, do you ever, do you ever grapple with, do you ever point it out in another artist and say, Hey man, mm-hmm. like this is good stuff. I think there's something else going on for you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh, I, I think you nailed it. I, uh, and it's, it's kind of all of the above, right? Because, um, because there's so many types of artists um, and types of people. Uh, I, there's a lot of times I wish people would try a lot harder. Um, there, you know, there's, uh, you know, potential, you know, what is potential? How do you tap potential? Um, um, if a person's, you know, um, if they're resisting, well, you're getting a lot less potential than you would have maybe if you'd just kept your mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, um, now, now you've got them so, in their head. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the, the amount, I probably spend more time getting people out of their head than uh, trying to straighten out their thinking mm-hmm. um, because it, it depends on the person. Um, some people can handle it. Uh, some people are very durable and they can handle a very direct conversation. Mm-hmm. And some people thrive on it. Like um, uh, I'm just finishing up a record for a band called Feeds on Majesty and the singer in that band, he's a highly achieved musician, not so much a highly achieved singer. Uh, I mean, I think he's done two records now. And uh, he was singing good when we were doing our tracks, but I remember thinking, oh, if you just did this one thing. And so I, I'm like, you know, if you just did this, blah, 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 like this, could you, uh, it might sound like this. And he's like, oh, okay. And, and he tried it and he, and I could hear he immediately adjusted Mm. to what I suggested. And I'm like, Oh, wow. Here's a guy who I point something out. He's excited to test it and he can actually, uh, interpret what I'm suggesting and turn it into a delivery. And so we ended up doing that the whole record that way. Um, I didn't tell him everything to sing. I'm just saying that. He allowed a door to be open between us where now we're working together and I could see where he couldn't see. And now right. together you actually hit a higher mark. Mm-hmm. Um, that's awesome. I, I, I kind of wish it was like that all the time. All the time, yeah. <laughs> How do you pay the bills? Um, you, know, uh, you know, you mentioned this already. You, kinda, you work with who, who comes in the door, but also you do have standards. You're looking for people who, who align with your uh, level. Right. Yeah. Or at yeah. your level professionally. Um, you know, I, I'm specifically curious about kind of what people have called the death of the recording studio, um, which yeah. I don't know where you'd place that in the 90s, maybe when <laughs> when technology no. for, became digital and people artists realized they could record with really good mics at home in their laptop. I mean, where does it do you, do you that, have you been impacted by that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've definitely that's sort of a. A narrative, I guess, that's sort of paralleled my my path. Um, you know, I, I it, it's interesting to to have come up through you know the rock 
era of the 70s and then to kind of plop into the 80s with electronic music. Mm-hmm. Um, go through the 90s sort of experimental uh, stuff. And I really kind of came out of the 90s back into more... Um, more straight ahead recording, but the but the benefit of going through that circuitous route that I took was that uh, I I've worked with the computer every day of my life since 1984, right? And I found that it um, it worked really well for me. It uh, I remember early on when I couldn't afford to go into an expensive studio, um, I suddenly had a tool that I could throw my arrangements in and change them up any way I wanted and try it like this or like that. And uh, what a powerful thing. Right? I wanted a drum beat that was different than that. I wanted it to be like this. Mm-hmm. So as a writer, uh, wow, powerful. liberating. Very, very powerful. Uh, I, I want to pivot a little bit to talk, to talk about how, you know, wh- whether it's uh, any number of musicians, we could go through the list and talk about how their lives whether it's because they became famous, Elvis, obviously, right? You know, it's this sort of trajectory. Amy Winehouse um, comes to mind. People who uh, maybe struggled with uh, substance abuse or addiction or some sort of mental health issues before, but but certainly getting back to or getting onto that stage and having to repeat performances, repeat uh, perfection and do things really well over and over again just leads them into the cycle of substance abuse. And I, I looked up and you know, I think we we all kind of know that substance abuse is an elephant in the room in the music industry. Um, uh, but it's almost like I like I said to you earlier before this conversation. It's like, well, you know, a lot of these places, music shows up at venues where they're serving alcohol. If everyone's drinking, they're there to have fun. If everyone's making money, what's the problem, right? It seems like we look the other way when it comes to musicians, and then we're, we're uh, yeah. all sad when we hear of an overdose. Um, yep. Yep. So, I mean, I'm curious what your experience is with with seeing that in other musicians. Um, how you've how you've managed to stay. I'm going to say clean. I, I don't know you. I'm assuming, <laughs> but you know. But I think, yeah. Is is that a struggle in, in when you're in the music business? Honestly, there haven't been many occasions where I've had to deal with somebody uh, going off the side. I guess, yeah, uh, kind of ruining their life. Um, and, and there's quite a trend in my community of people just deciding not to drink at all. So that's, uh, you know, very positive. That's, um, to see the changes in their life. And I don't, I don't have any opinion either way, whether somebody should do that or not, but, uh, but being self-destructive, uh, that's, that's not cool. Uh, you know, you want everybody to be happy and be successful and, um, yeah, but I've definitely known a lot of artists who uh, are. It's like they're almost not fit for this world. Um, um, they have a hard, and, and this is a min- minority of people that I've dealt with over the years. But there's some people that you know they carry their heart on their sleeve and uh, are. Just, I hate to say they're not tough enough, but they. I'm not sure what that is that. Um, they're hurting in some way. They're they're, they're hurting in some way. exactly, exactly. Or, or vulnerable. Uh, I mean, and uh, I, yeah, I haven't really had much experience with that. I've had some artists who've had some mental illness, and that's almost been a bigger issue. Uh, um, and 
my community, I mean, weed is is a pretty big thing with uh, a certain percentage of the artists that I work with. Um, some of them do that a lot. <laughs> and enough to where I'm like, wow, that's a lot. And, and, and you're not there to be the cops, obviously. You're not there to be parents. Yeah. People aren't hiring. In fact, maybe the opposite. They want you to be hands-off. They want you to, to yeah. be permissive and open to you know the creative process and everything. So it's probably the yeah. last thing on your list of things to be worried about. Right. I, uh, I wanted to jump back to you know, studio kind of tech stuff for, for a second. I'm sure there's people out there who would love to hear kind of what your take, uh, your favorite piece of gear is, just to talk for a quick minute about something you wouldn't want to be left behind with if you if you needed to do a project somewhere what's what's a piece of gear or two that you uh, that's a fun subject <laughs> uh part of my answer is uh, probably unexpected in that my main recording system pro tools is kind of so my jam that that's kind of the obvious real answer for me and and what i mean by that is uh, there's there's many competing uh, brands of recording system. Um, I've been with Pro Tools for about 20 years, and you know when you get a tool so integrated that you're you're in it virtually without thinking it. Mm. And once you're there, all of a sudden you feel like you're just in a a playground. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the vast world of tools and pot- potentials. Uh, uh, so I mean, really, that program, that one program, is for me that kind of uh, magical, unique thing that I'm excited to touch every day. Um, to get more specific, you know, there, like there's some plugins uh, that, uh, yeah, it, it's funny. I think I'm kind of a nuts and bolts guy, so something like Melodyne, which is an auto tuning mm-hmm. uh, uh, plugin inside Pro Tools. Um, I get a thrill out of the the control of touching that every now and again. That what that can do to just take that little flaw and just touch it uh, yeah. is very powerful. And um, you know, I don't like to tell that to a lot of people because a lot of people are mortified that that's what I would like to do. Um, but I find that um, uh, you know, discretion in everything. Right. Can you can you tell um, when just listening to the radio when somebody's vocals have been enhanced or maybe auto tuned? If it's mm-hmm. um, like I have f- friends in the industry who claim that no matter how little has been done, they can tell. Um, like they say, there's a sound, and I I search for that sound because that would scare me. Uh, yeah. If clearly. At a certain level, if somebody's too perfect, you're like, I'm pretty sure that's been massively touched. Yeah. And then, of course, you get into the more artistic use of it, which is, you know, an entirely different thing. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but the jury's out, right? Like, there are some really good singers who can maybe yeah. sing that good. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. I've done magic on people before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes both ways. How about yeah. a favorite favorite vocal mic? If you were to, if you, if you had to name uh, one, that's a good conversation. Um, I mean, the U87 Neumann is probably become, I mean, it's, it's an old mic. It's, it's maybe the most common vocal mic 
in the industry. Um, I don't own one currently. I usually rent them for sessions, um, but I also use a lot of dynamic mics. Um, so the SM7B that I'm actually being recorded on right now mm-hmm. is a wonderful mic. Um, I, I kind of have three mics. If I'm not using the U87, I'm usually using either the SM7B or uh, Sennheiser uh, 441 uh, or an AKG 414. Like those, those three mics are kind of my in-studio uh, go-to mics. Um, I have other radio mics, like the RE20 is a lovely mic, but it has to be for the right voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially every mic has to go to the right voice. Yeah, I mean, that's you're, you're, really you're like you're like uh, the guy at Ollivander's in Harry Potter that sort of finds the the right wand for the right, for the wizard or something. <laughs> there's, a, there's a I've got a mic for you. <laughs> um, what what are some albums or songs that have influenced you this past year, Gary? I mean, maybe during the maybe pandemic favorites, um, artists that you just feel like are just have gotten into your bones. Oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, not to be repetitive, but to, I mean, Tove Lowe's last record, uh, I think it's called, uh, is it Sunshine Kitty? Uh, I, yeah, I just, that just blew my mind. Um, uh, I've actually kind of gone backwards to some older artists. Uh, I do enjoy reggae and, uh, the scientist was my favorite artist for a few months, um, and will, will be forever, but kind of, I've, I'm a little ashamed that I just discovered him this year because now talking to all my buddies who have known about him forever. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, one of the artists who whose record just got released this year that I worked on for many years, uh, Sun Crow, their genre is more um, doom, metal, blues kind of thing. Uh, incredible record, but but working with them has sort of got me a lot more into listening to some of the heavier music and... Uh, uh, so Wolfat is a band that I've kind of recently been into and really love everything that they're doing. Um, oh, and of course, uh, Courtney Marie Andrews record that she just did, which is on a completely different end of things because it's actually like modern country hmm. and uh, sort of traditionally influenced, but still modern and just a beautiful expression. Uh, she's like one of the best singers that exists. Any projects you're working on, Gary, that, that you want to say something about or, or tell yeah. people where they can go to find you or find something that, that you think they should check out? You know, I, I did an amazing record about two years ago that I have to help this artist get it more into the daylight because it's just too good. And that's... Uh, Kevin Sir and Andrew Joslin's record, uh, uh, The Love Between. And I love I, that. Yeah, I, the reason I say this is number one, I think it's an absolutely lovely record. It's a uniquely different record from most things that I do. So it's primarily 
Kevin Sir uh, playing his songs on acoustic guitar, but with Andrew Joslin arranging and performing uh, with his quartet um, the string arrangements. Um, we had a few extra friends help with some bass and electric guitar and some singing, but it's primarily Andrew and Kevin, and we were able to create this just big, lush thing that I think is quite unique, and I, I'd really like more people to hear that. More recently, uh, the, the biggest news for me is really the success of Sun Crow. Um, you know, it's it's success in a genre that's not getting a lot of love from mainstream radio or the world in a lot of ways because it is uh, quite heavy, uncompromising music. Um, but the fact that this band spent all these years doing this record. And then they self-release without shopping it, and in less than 24 hours, there's a thousand people talking about it. And I, I didn't know that was possible hmm. in my career. Hmm. That's never happened. Like uh, over, overnight viral. Oh yeah, yeah. And it it was because a few important people stumbled onto it immediately, and it, if those people hadn't have found it, yeah, you know, who knows? Would have it would have always been a great record. But now it's getting a chance to uh, to see the light of day and to get out into th the world. So that I'm extremely excited about, and with. I don't. I'm sure the audience for that record is pretty small. Maybe on this podcast, who knows? Sure, I would imagine, but you never know. <laughs> you never know. It's it's a quite a good record. If you like heavy music, like rock music, it's a really really good record. Well, thank you for sharing this time with me, Gary Mueller. Uh, Absolutely. My pleasure to talk with you today, Gary. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so... You can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go. 